Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. This episode forms the first in a mini-series all about community carbon offsetting. In March, I hosted a high-profile event at the University of Strathclyde, which, if I say so myself, formed a fascinating gathering of people to discuss how land use and land ownership is changing across rural Scotland in response to the booming carbon offset market. We focus particularly on voluntary nature-based carbon offsetting. Here, landowners invest in natural forms of carbon sequestration or carbon capture, such as afforestation or peatland restoration. This is to generate carbon credits for sale on the open market. These carbon credits are bought up by organisations wanting to offset their own carbon emissions by funding reductions or carbon avoidance elsewhere instead of cutting their own carbon emissions. Now, the main voice you'll be hearing today will not be Becky, Fraser, or myself. It will be the renowned writer, academic, and activist, Alistair McIntosh. Alistair was brought up in Lerbost on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides. He has been very heavily involved with Scottish land reform, most notably the community buyout of the Hebridean Isle of Egg, and a successful campaign against a proposed super quarry on the Isle of Harris. In Glasgow, he's also helped to set up the government-based Galgale Trust, of which he is treasurer and a non-executive director. He also holds various academic positions, including Fellow of the Centre for Human Ecology, which examines the relationship between humans and their natural, social and built environments. And finally, Alistair is a very well-renowned author, and his works include Soil and Soul, People versus Corporate Power, Riders on the Storm, The Climate Crisis and the Survival of Being, and finally, Rekindling Community, Connecting People, Environment and Spirituality. Alistair was our opening speaker for day two of our conference, and he has generously allowed us to share the recording of his talk, and in it he talks about the importance of community in its broadest sense, but also his thoughts on land ownership in Scotland through the ages. Keep in mind that Alistair mentioned several times throughout his talk about hyperlinks and references contained in his PowerPoint slides. To access these, please visit our webpage 
at www.localzeropod.com where you can navigate to his talk on the episodes page. There you will find a link to his talk contained in our episode notes where you can access all the bonus material. So, enjoy this passionate talk from Alistair. So who is the community? Why does it matter for offsetting? Community of interest versus community of place. So something like a fishing club or a tennis club or a landowner's finance group is a community of interest. They are like the fingers of community. But the hand that holds it all geographically in geographical community is community of place. I want to suggest the community is vertical as well as horizontal. That in modernity, advanced modernity, it has become disembedded when we're talking about these kind of advanced capitalist structures that we are today. We're talking about a consequence of advanced modernity. A community is rekindled by land reform. This is how we can restore control and agency. And community desire is a key to authentic, sustainable development. I use that term without hesitation in its proper Brundtland sense. Meaning, relationships of soil, i.e. with the natural environment, with soul, with the inner life, psychological, spiritual, and society with one another, held in democratic agency as communities of place. These are things that I unpack, especially in these three books that you see here. We can link communities out of print, but on the PowerPoint of the live link to a PDF download. And because of the nature of this group and the importance of these points in being heard and understood by these group, by this group, I brought along a box of riders in the storm. And I know that academics never buy books and that nobody carries money anymore. So I'm just going to make those available. Help yourself to one but that is what I will be drawing them there. And especially at the end, where I quote David Cameron of Community Land Scotland, saying that what's needed is supportive government structures and community desire within those to build the competence to make it work. David really emphasised the desire, and he said if the desire is there, then we can do it. So... Why does it matter for offsetting? It matters to avoid local violation. And I always reflect with a French wife that in French, le viol, the root of violence, means rape. It it is there to avoid the rape of communities and therefore damage the greater social fabric of the nation. And that was something I want to emphasize. This is not just about we communities up in the highlands or down in the borders. This is about how we build from the grassroots up organically the social fabric of what it means to be Scotland. So let's start with that. There's me on the right and my sister about 60 years ago. And notice my friend Alec George Morrison there. There we were about 20 years ago. There's our house and the trees behind. My father planted trees to show it could be done. That's a surgery. He was the local doctor. That's our village lower boss there. Notice also my friend Rusty, president of the local historical society now. All of us in primary one together. This is not Facebook community that you like and forget somebody. This is community that lasts for a long time. There we were last year 
out in the Pentland Moor, looking at the old shielding structures, looking at what is embedded there, looking at who had their peats where, and how memory is encoded in the landscape. Another friend, Alice Starmore, about the same age of, as me, who grew up in back, but had her grazings out near where our house was. The moor is bound up with my very first memories. And that must be the reason why I associate it with my mother. The springtime smell, when everything is just starting to grow, particularly reminds me of her. And I cannot help but think of her whenever I leave the road and take the first step onto the moor and heather, the moss and heather, the softness beneath my feet is somehow maternal and life-affirming. If we are talking about changing land use by rewilding, this is the depths we have to understand. Uh, Alastair Moore, um, family named Mattison, they're famous for her designs of yarn. So there we are, you know, through these years. And listen to John Lon Campbell of Cannock. The consciousness of the garlic mind may be described as possessing historical continuity and religious sense. It may be said to exist in a vertical plane. The consciousness of the modern world, on the other hand, may be said to exist in a horizontal plane, possessing breadth and extent, dominated by scientific materialism and a concern with purely contemporary happenings. There is a profound difference between the two mental attitudes, which represent the different spirit of different ages and are very much in conflict. So that verticality of community, you're not just talking about geographical entities, you're also talking about the psychohistory, the psychological history, and deepening from that, I would suggest, depending upon one's belief system, deepening into matters of soul, deepening into matters of spirituality. Uh, not for nothing is religion such a presenting issue in the current SNP leadership election. Dr. John McInnes, later of the Scottish School of Scottish Studies, uh, born in Lewis, raised, grew up in Rassi. The native gale carries in her or his imagination not so much a landscape, not a sense of geography alone, nor of history alone, but a formal order of experience in which these are all merged. That sense of how we order our experience is central to John's understanding of community. The native sensibility responds not to landscape, but to dusja, which cannot be translated into English without robbing the term of its emotional energy. As ancestral or family land, it is also family tradition, and equally it is hereditary qualities of an individual. In other words, who we are is coming from the land, and the importance of land reform in reconstituting communities of place, the importance of how or whether offsetting can play a role in deepening those communities of place is hinging on factors like this, and it is nothing less than emotional energy that is at stake. Now, I didn't grow up in Lewis as a middle-class doctor's son with another foot in the crofting community, naturally understanding these things. I actually only understood when in 1977, after doing a very helpful geography degree at Aberdeen University and thankfully failing chemistry. So I had to do research, which ended up doing both 
moral philosophy and psychology to advanced levels in the way you could do in Aberdeen University in those days. I don't know if you still could. But thanks to that backdrop, I went out to Papua New Guinea, was voluntary service overseas in 1977, teaching, setting up small-scale hydroelectricity units in the mountains here because of what a crofting background can give to you in practicality, and learning about the imperative of land from people like Margaret Ogemeni here, the extension worker at the South Pacific Appropriate Technology Foundation, for which I later worked as financial advisor after having come back to Scotland and done an MBA at Edinburgh in 1980 in order to make myself a bit more useful. So what did I learn? Well, what do we learn? Because we have all been coming to this history in modern times. So here I am with a group from New Guinea, actually from West Papua, West Papua and Papua provinces in Papua, Indonesia, of which you may know something of the political constellation. I won't go into that here. Uh, there's my wife in the background there, uh, Varen, um, right at the back there. And we're got Rusty, the village blacksmith, is going to be blacksmith shipwright, flight train shipwright, president of historical society. He's going to be taking us across the end of the loch there, the end of Loch Lobos, to that green area. Why is it green? Why is nobody living on that side of Loch Lobos? Why, when you go there, do you see these ruins there scattered all around that southern area of Lewis? Notice as we go, the Fianagan, the old lazy beds of cultivation, not used for a long time, but look at how sea level rise and increased storminess is eating away at them, eating away our heritage. Indigenous peoples around the world are extremely aware of this, especially if they are coastal. And so we sat with the older and the younger members of our community, Evelyn Cooler McLeod and Catherine Mary McLean there. Notice the anchor stuck in the ground there from one of the old boats. As we talked about our anchor points, we talked about the meaning of community across the world in societies of communities of place. And we told them about the clearances and they matched that to their colonial experience initially under the Dutch. We talked about what it does to people's psyches, to their minds. Intergenerationally, the intergenerational trauma of being pushed off the land. We talked about how people, are, my own twice great grandfather here, a presenter in the Free Church, Murder McLennan of Conton Strasconnen, whose father's people were evicted by the Balfour family. We talked about how they used their proceeds from mainly English industry and Scottish landowning to build places like I'm inclined to pronounce it Dun Robin Castle, but you have to ask if the Robin is fully done yet. We talked about where that leaves people, because the people I've just shown you here are distantly, or some of them are distantly related to a certain American president, because Donald Trump's mother, whose people had been evicted in the 1820s, in 1830, when she was 17, emigrated to America. The whole constellation of poverty that led so many people when they could to leave the island. 
And so the Stonery Gazette's headline, when you're sworn in, notice the constellation. They put much more emphasis on bags not being searched at the airport than they have on the fact that a man sprung from the loins of a woman from Lewis has taken official control of the most powerful political office in the world. Because, of course, the community were ashamed, or most of them were ashamed of his values. Why? What happened? I put it to you that when something piles in on Scottish communities like this, when all of a sudden we're being told the bankers are coming to town and there's one of our green MSPs surrounded by bankers, and the memorandum of understanding that Andy Whiteman got from Nature Scott and released mentioned communities only three times and confidentiality 38 times in an eight-page document. What sort of transparency is that? I put it to you that we're in, if we want to be academic about it, a chai lambda position, bottom right there, on common parlance, let's call it X and an inverted Y. It's like at one time, back in the days, you had what I, not just me, but what folk where I come from, would think of as a green welly Oxbridge set of conservation ecologists who'd come in with a relatively right-wing mindset, relatively right-wing mindset. I'm generalizing here. Get into bed with landowners and look at setting up triple SIs, etc. In a way that was necessary, because simply to save some of these places, it needed a scientific framing in the 20th, in the mid-20th century, like that. But on the other hand, you've got the community development people. You might say more politically on the left wing. And so they're like this. Nature people. Rewilding, repeopling. And what happened progressively, culminating in 1987, was it came together with the Brundtland Commission, Our Common Future, with that famous definition of sustainable development as not satisfying the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future. And the question I think we are facing now and in this conference is whether the future will be a lambda shape, an inverted Y, a double helix, where the two are integrated together and the task of people like us here is to keep them together, or whether both sides will look at each other and say, uh-uh, we're not having that, and they'll overshoot and go back into a chai or X shape. So I talk about this as the X and Y axes of sustainable development. Okay, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at what Giddens talks of as the consequences of modernity, the sociologist who advised Tony Blair in the early days. Where community has become disembedded as a consequence. The dynamism of modernity derives from the separation of time and space and their recombination in forms which permit the disembedding of social systems. The emptying of time is in large part the precondition of the emptying of space, clearances, and may be understood in terms of the separation of space from place by fostering relations between absent others like bankers from God knows where, locationally distant from any given situation of face-to-face -face interaction, the phenomenon serves to open up manifold possibilities of change by breaking free from the restraints of local habits and practices. That is to say, locales are thoroughly penetrated by 
and shaped in terms of social influences quite distant from them. This, friends, is what we must avoid with carbon offsetting. You'll be saying, well, that's all very well up in the highlands and islands, Alistair, but what about here in Glasgow? Well, I lived in Govan for 20 years for a reason, being a founding trustee of the Galgale Trust, the Gal, the stranger, the Gale, the heartland people, Sinead O'Connor, if there's ever going to be healing, there has to be remembering, remembering, putting back what has been dis dismembered so that there can be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. Paulo Freire of Brazil calls it conscientization, the raising to consciousness and conscience. So in Galgale, grassroots urban folks also needing to reconnect with community of place, also needing that historical connection that has so often been denied of them. So in our workshops, we're building boats, making all kinds of things of beauty, very viscerally so sometimes when we cook up a stew, if somebody is good enough to give us a deer or a batch of pheasants that were handed in to us the other day. And we get out into our boats, notice established ninth century when the term Galgale first started to be used. We get out onto the river, we might raise the sail and reclaiming heritage, reconnecting coastal communities. And what is it that we find? What is it that we find, friends, when we start reconnecting with coastal communities? Well, perhaps we go up as far as Ascent, uh, north of Alapu, to Kroeger here, to um, Lisa MacDonald, from my window, I see the fence in the next house, a scrap of sky where the buzzard hangs low over fields of pall glass. We who are here, we are lucky. These houses are warm and the rent secure. In the distance are sunshine and freedom. The beaches, the poised, sure hills and space. Not ours, this plenty. We may touch it and reach it, but live on it and know. My sister would bring home her family, but homes can't be found. I miss them. The falling school roll misses three bright young minds. Though I know I am lucky, I long for a place of my own with blue and light and black brown soil where my children can grow on the land, where my children can grow on the land. The imperative of land reform, why it matters so much, not just in rural Scotland, but in the work the Land Commission and Community Land Scotland have been doing, increasingly also for urban Scotland. So this is why in 1991, we launched the original Islet. Isle of Eggs Trust, a challenge to landed power, an island owned by one man, Keith Schellenberg, put on the market as a consequence of needing to separate business arrangements following one of his divorces. We launched the manifesto because at that time people didn't feel free to talk. Quoting McDermott, we have sanctuaries for birds, but not for people. The question 
that we faced was legitimacy. How do you establish legitimacy? What we did is we had a public meeting and we said, look, we understand why the community couldn't do this itself, but key gatekeepers, note that term, key gatekeepers in the community have said we're heading in the right direction. We've got that legitimacy, but now you must express your voice. So the Residents Association, a locally legitimate democratic group, held a secret ballot. 73% in favor on 100% turnout, but with the proviso that we gave the residents power of veto over anything we might do. That was crucial. That was what built trust. Built trust. My message to investors in Highland v. Wilding or any other such scheme is that unless you are prepared to trust communities to that extent of veto, then do not expect communities to trust you with your investment plans. Jeremy said to me, I can't do that. It's not what investors want. Earlier, he had indicated to me it was too much like hard work. He said, I'm 68. I've not got the time to do that. Fair enough, I can understand that, but it does raise a question as to whether this is an appropriate way forward or whether public resources instead ought to be put into things like this. The first elected board of the Isle of Egg Trust, community elected. Look what happened. You then get people like Angus McKinnon, the tradition bearer there, teaching incomers like Davy Robertson from Easterhouse or Karen Helliwell from the south of England teaching them with the Orton survey maps the meaning of the places, passing on to them that verticality of history. Um, Schellenberg didn't like it. He issued eviction letters to some of the key island people who were involved in the trust. I'm going to have to cut through this very quickly. In short, a Scottish land rights revolution got going. We launched an appeal. We ended up raising 1.6 million from 30,000 donations around the world. We bought it, market spoiling. Camille Dresler there with me, Maggie Fife there on the day of the buyout, 12th June 1997. Market spoiling meant instead of getting the three million he'd hoped for, Schellenberg got one and a half billion for it, or rather his creditors. It was actually Maruma by that time, but. That's complicating the story. So now we go back to a healthy community, a community where wellness is at the heart of what's happening. We've aged a wee bit. There's Camille there. There's her five years ago at the 20th anniversary with a, a bottle of very nice Talisker that the brewery gave a crate of. You go to Egg now, and it's a green island. It's got its own businesses. People who were on the dole taking money from the state are now paying taxes to the state. All kinds of, I mean, you've, you'll all have heard about Egg's energy system. That united a divided community. There was still some division, but when it comes to, do you want to be joined up to the electricity system? Whew, that shifts mind. As George McLeod of the Iona community, for which I was business advisor for five years in the 1980s, put it, as George said, only a demanding common task builds community. It's a huge joy to me now that the current island directors and the trust were all children at the time of the buyout. We are seeing the intergenerational transmission. It's a huge joy to me that the, um, the chair of community land 
Scotland here, also on the board of Highland and Island Enterprise, also on the board of the Crown Commission, is also the chair of the Isle of Egg Trust just now, succeeding Jim Hunter. What do the Papuans have to say? The Papuans' conclusion on visiting places like Egg, Skye, and in Lewis and Harris said, we have seen that people here have two things that make their communities work, love and a sense of ownership. The land in Papua is more productive, but because these people love so much, it holds it all together. They're happy to live for other people and not just for themselves. They understand that land is God's creation. Friends, that's a central driver. We've got to ask of anything we do, is it going to serve love? Because without love, there is no desire. There can be none of the community desire that David Cameron so emphasizes. The scholars here will know of Benedict Anderson's concept of imagined communities. In an anthropological spirit, then, I propose the following definition of the nation. It is an imagined political community, an imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. In the minds of each lives the image of their communion. Regretfully, in my view, this doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go deep enough into an understanding of the imagination, such as Ibn Arabi, the Islamic scholar, had, of imagination being something that we don't just have, but we move in, that is of a divine origin, ultimately. We don't just reimagine our communities. We dig very deep into what it means to be a human. Ernest Renan put it well in 1882, a nation is a soul a spiritual principle. And you may think that's off the wall. But read my paper that's on web, free online on my website, The Political Theology of Modern Scottish Land Reform, where Rutger Henneman, one of my students, and I interviewed a dozen key leaders as to the role that spirituality played in bringing about the passing of the Land Reform Scotland Act 2003, 20 years ago. And you will see these deep things, but you have, to, you have to let your eyes adjust to the twilight, or you won't see. In the glazing glare, <laughs> blazing glare <laughs> of the likes of Jeremy Leggett saying, the Highlands is my new frontier. As in his recent piece that he put out, I'm not quoting exactly, but basically seeing it as his latest frontier. He put solar panels on roofs, now he was going to rewild the Highlands. I said in a reply tweet to which he didn't respond, Jeremy, it's one thing to put panels on roofs. It's another thing to parachute into communities of this kind of depth. So not everybody is going to be happy, but we have our Land Reform Bill now act past 25th February 2003. This is what the rewilding agenda, what carbon offsets must not cut across. Unless it's supportive of this framework, it violates community. Frank Rennie, 
University of Highlands and Islands, the adherence to social, environmental, as well as economic objectives means that local land trusts married by, managed by local people have different and longer-term perceptions of what sustainable development might actually mean. The reason why I'm going to some slight expense to offer you copies of this is that it ends up on that. Climate change is so huge, we can all see none of the answers add up, even, even very much. So huge. I, in this book, I unpack the last three special reports of the IPCC. I only deal with that kind of mainstream consensus expert science. I unpack that. I move to the conclusions it draws and then say, well, where does that leave us? And the best answer I can give to ordinary people on the street or in the countryside is rekindle community. Come what may in the come to pass, it is community that we need. And that is why both rural and urban land reform is important. So Jeremy Leggett in this recording here, you've got live links here, saying institutional investors are only going to do that if we, they're only going to invest if we have a structure that they're used to dealing with, a small board of very business experienced people. But as a Scottish land commissioner said to me, it is much more part of the solution than it is part of the problem. Well, as you probably know, the Land Commission has felt there have been some misunderstandings in Highland v. Wilding's comprehension of its position. And Andrew Thin, certainly in his communications with me, has been anxious, Andrew Thin, the chair, has been anxious to correct that misunderstanding because it was undermining the social legitimacy of our Scottish Land Commission. And I'm very happy to report, in fact, I believe there is also something on the website dealing with certain aspects of this. It's probably not for me to say any more about that. But I'm glad to hear that things are shifting on that front. And I've deliberately closed with this slide. So I, I took you all the way to God, folks. I took you all the way up to heaven. And I brought you back down to the realities of climate finance because... When Matt invited me to do this, I wanted to leave enough time for us to have good discussion. So, thank you so much. So, we've just heard from Alistair. Fascinating talk, covering tremendous ground. Many thought-provoking reflections on his time working both as a member of a community, but also supporting others. So, what did we learn? Well, first and foremost, it's about how we frame community. There's no point in us trying to engage with, to try and support, to collaborate with communities unless we know who they are and what they capture. So on the one hand, we may have a community of interest, but we also may have a community of place. The two are not necessarily the same thing. So the first point of call is really to frame that community and understand who exactly it is that we are engaging with. The second, I think, is reflecting on the state of the carbon offsetting market and the real danger of running into many of the same issues that we've encountered historically. Most notably, this feeling of a community, not just in rural environments, but this was the focus of the talk, about being colonised by outside powers, potentially with ulterior motives. 
Now, carbon offsetting presents a potential threat in this regard as new investors and landowners begin to mobilise to take advantage of these new land-based market opportunities around the generation of carbon offsets. And crucially, we're still dealing with the intergenerational trauma of non-democratic land use change and the displacement of communities as encapsulated by the clearances. Now, this is because who we are comes from the land. The land is bound in our historical and religious sense of self and cannot be disentangled. Our memory is encoded in the landscape that we inhabit. This is important, really important, when undertaking processes of land reform to reconstitute communities of place. But importantly, as demonstrated by cases such as the buyout, the community buyout of the Isle of Egg, threats present opportunities to galvanise community action as they self-organise in response to fast-moving events. More broadly too, community, our sense of community, can be rekindled through land reform, and carbon offsetting must reinforce the democratisation of land, rather than further concentrate power in the hands of those who already possess it. Finally, for landowners keen to work with communities, rather than against them, the power of a community veto was considered critical by Alistair. If you don't trust communities, they won't trust you. So I hope you enjoyed the talk. Please keep your eyes peeled for the next in this mini-series, which will feature the panel discussion and Q&A that followed Alice's talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues and stay tuned for more episodes taken from this conference. Until then, bye for now. Produced by the Spoken Media.